Welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The Temple of Artemis at Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The final version of the temple covered more than two acres and stood for 600 years. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Radical Renewal with this sermon entitled God's Prevailing Kingdom, which covers Acts chapter 19 verses 21 to 41. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Daryl, if you will, come and lead us in the word, reading the scripture. He'll be reading from Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, said to him, and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Thank you, Daryl. Let's read together our prayer of illumination. Oh, make your word a swift word, 
passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip and conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen and amen. Many of you have heard me share, if you've been with us uh, over the years, about where I was before I came to be on staff here at Perimeter in 2015. Previous to that, for 13 years, Rachel and I both served with a campus ministry called Crew. Traditionally, um, it was called Campus Crusade for Christ. And we served on three different college campuses over the course of those 13 years. We served two years at Southern Miss, served four years at the University of Georgia, and then seven years at the University of Alabama, where we had met as students in, uh, back in the 90s. And so, incredible time for us to be back in, on that campus, and really at all three campuses, uh, but real, specifically even more at Alabama, the way in which we did about, went about ministry, the way we did ministry, was focused almost exclusively on fraternity and sorority students. Greek, the Greek system as it's called, which can be confusing. I've said the Greek system before and some people say, so there was a lot of Greek students from Greece at Alabama, that's interesting. No, no, that's just a way because they use Greek letters to identify themselves, they call it the Greek system, but fraternity and sorority students. And one of the main reasons that we focused there is because there weren't other ministries focusing there. And traditionally speaking, uh, if you're familiar with Greek systems on various campuses, you know that typically that's one of the most unreached areas of campus in the sense of people don't go to a major university to join a fraternity or sorority because they want to walk with Jesus. Right, that's not typically why they do that. And they may have a church background. They may be Christian uh, in identification, but they're not in that arena because they want to be a light for Jesus, not typically at least. And so we wanted to be a ministry that said, you know what, we, we want to, and that was our background. Rachel and I were in a fraternity and sorority uh, at Alabama. We, wanted to, we knew how dark it could be spiritually, and we wanted to bring the light of Jesus into that place. When we got to Tuscaloosa in 2008, we inherited from the ministry that had been going on there before us around 40 to 50 students, which was great. We loved that. That was not anything to be discouraged about. But as we began to think about the reality of that there were 30-something thousand students on this campus, we began to pray fervently, God, would you use us, if it be your will, to be a part of taking the gospel in such a way that we would be able to see many, many more students come to faith in Jesus? And so we began to pray that, and in addition to our prayers, we began to go into each one of these fraternity and sorority houses proclaiming the gospel. Sometimes, most of the time, that meant just in relational context as we got to know students and build relationships with them. But sometimes, oftentimes, in the fall semester, I would go into every house that I possibly could, and sometimes we were able to go into every house and speak to the freshman pledge classes. And um, there are some of you that I know are in this congregation who used to serve on staff with crew, and you know exactly what I'm talking about because you used to do the same thing. We go in and we speak to these freshman pledge classes and by the end of our presentation, 10 minutes at most, we spent the last two or three minutes sharing the gospel. And it was always interesting to see how God would work and move in that. Now listen, what I'm about to tell you is not in any way to the praise of us or to say that it always works this way. But by the end of our seven years at Alabama, God had grown the ministry from 40 to 50 students to somewhere between five and 700 students who would come and be a part of what we were doing. 
And as we tried to see and figure out uh, as best we could, we were able to determine that a large number of that growth was through new believers, people who had believed upon Christ for the first time. People who came to, to college not thinking, hey, this is where I'm gonna go to meet Jesus. But God had different plans. And they did meet Jesus and their lives were transformed from the inside out and everything changed. When we consider the passage that we're looking at today, really what this passage is about, there's a lot of things happening in, in what we just heard read for us. But really the big overarching emphasis of what Luke, the writer of Acts, is wanting us to, to sit with is the power of the gospel proclaimed. And I wanna give you five things from this text, from this passage, the implications that come from this passage that I want you to just think on, sit on, and apply to your lives. And the first one is simply this. The proclamation of the gospel, gospel proclamation, bears kingdom fruit. It, it, when we proclaim the gospel, when we tell people about Jesus, God through that bears fruit. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, it may not be in the timing that we wish it were. It could be that you uh, believe upon Christ in such a way that you say, God, I want to be a part of this movement of yours and I wanna proclaim the gospel and you don't see a lot of fruit immediately. You may not even see a lot of, a fruit, a lot of fruit over the course of maybe a few years and there's no promise that you would see a lot of fruit over the course of your lifetime. I'm reminded of the number of missionaries over the course of church history who went into incredibly hostile, pagan, sometimes even cannibalistic cultures and villages. And they sowed the seed of the gospel in those places without seeing fruit in their lifetime. But the next generations did. This is why Paul said in his letter to the Corinthians where he said, I, I planted Apollos water, but God is the one who made it grow. We don't know where we are in that process of planting and sowing and reaping the gospel fruit, but we do know, do know this. When God's people, don't miss this, this is key. When God's people catch the vision of sharing the gospel in their lives, things happen. God does stuff. Dirt of the heart, if you will, soil of the heart is stirred up. Things happen. Part of the struggle that we have, though, is we really struggle with believing that God still works in a way to where we see great fruit. I think as I, as I have conversation after conversation with many who are in the faith, I think there's, a, there's an undertone of unbelief that God's still doing extraordinary work in and through his church. There's a, there's a deflated heart of the church right now. There's an there's a unbelief that uh, revival, we might call it, or the word we've been using is renewal, can actually happen. And granted, we are, by the day, moving more and more into a post-Christian culture, for sure. But it doesn't mean that the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever isn't still doing extraordinary God-like things through jars of clay like us. When God's people catch the vision for sharing God's gospel, things happen. 
Fruit happens. God does stuff. We also struggle to believe this. We struggle, even if we say, okay, yeah, I know God's still doing some great work, but he's, you know, gosh, it's not gonna be through me. I'm so broken, I can't get my stuff together. I've got so many things that I can't even pray right about, much less tell somebody else about Jesus. And this is exactly why the scriptures tell us that we carry the treasure of the gospel around in broken jars of clay. That's who we are, we're fragile, we are broken, we do struggle. And God has said to us in scripture over and over again, it's not you who does the work, it's me through you. And if it were up to you to do the work, then yeah, of course, nothing would ever happen. But good news, it's not up to the Christian. It's up to God. God has done an extraordinary thing in just in, in the way he's laid out the plan of redemption. And here, here's what it is. He has called each and every one of us into this journey of proclaiming the gospel. Every single one of us. Now, some of us, yes, have the gift of evangelism. Some of us, it's, it just comes so natural, and it seems as if every time that brother or that sister tells somebody about Jesus, they repent and are on the spot, and they follow Jesus. Now, is that normal? Not for most of us. But even if you don't have the gift of evangelism, you've been called, every single one of us as followers of Christ, we have all been given the message of reconciliation. We've all been given the message of reconciliation. And you may hear that and think, man, what a burden. Gosh, I didn't ask for that. I just wanted to be saved. I want to be saved and then I want to go on my way. But God says, no, no, I, of course God can do whatever he wants. He could save whoever he wants to save and turn them from sin and death right now and do it at the snap of a finger and it be done and we not have a part to play in that. He could do that because he's God. He's all powerful. Sure, he could do that. But he didn't do that and he doesn't do that. What he does is he calls broken sinners like us into the battle and he entrusts us with the message of reconciliation. And he's asking us, to see it not as a burden, but to flip it on its head and say, no, that's not a burden, it's a privilege. What a joy. How incredible that the God of all creation who came to this earth to rescue me would actually call me into battle with him. And I am with him in such a way that I know who wins the battle. So I can actually engage in the spiritual battle with great confidence because it's not up to me and he's the victor. And so I get to go into it proclaiming the good news with great joy, considering it a great privilege. Even, don't miss this, even knowing that at some level I'm gonna screw it up. I'm not gonna present Jesus the best way that someone else could. I'm gonna fumble over my words. I'm gonna, after talking with someone about Jesus and the greatness of knowing him, I'm gonna go home and go, oh my goodness, what did I just say? That was terrible, I should have said this, I shouldn't have said that. That was a train wreck. And God says, good news, I use train wrecks. He's given us the message of reconciliation. He's also made a promise to us. And the promise is, going back to what he was telling the disciples on that Thursday night before he was crucified on Friday, he says, you're gonna have tribulation in this world. 
He tells him, he promises, just like I was just saying, but take heart, I've overcome the world, so you know who the victor is, but you will have tribulation. And the context of that is this, you're gonna have tribulation because you're gonna take the gospel into a really hard, hostile place called the world. And as you proclaim the gospel, there's gonna be opposition. That's the second thing I want you to take from this passage. Second implication is that gospel proclamation elicits opposition naturally. It will, it's going to, don't be surprised by it. When we proclaim the, the greatness of Jesus and his love for all people, it will be met with opposition. God wants us to prepare for that in such a way that we wouldn't be taken aback by it. Now, opposition for us in our context here in America is going to look different. We know this. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's just the reality. It's going to look different than many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world. There are so many Christians throughout the world that pro- proclaiming the gospel The good news of Jesus is going to put their lives on the line. Death could be imminent for them. Now, we are not in that reality, at least not now. We could be, who knows, down the road, but that's not us now. Opposition for us now, though, is still opposition. I can remember walking into one of those fraternity houses, and as I'm talking to these pledges, and I'm these freshmen, and I'm sharing a little bit about my life, and I'm giving them a few analogies and stories, and then as I'm starting to move into what Jesus did in my life and sharing my story, I can remember one of the guys stands up and starts yelling expletives. It's like, wow, okay, he, he doesn't agree with this. That's good. Um, and, and it caught me off guard, but at the same time, I was like, well, why wouldn't I expect that? Eye rolls, there were always eye rolls every time I would, it's like, okay, I can handle that. There was another time, though, where there was an email that went out on the student server to every student at the University of Alabama. And the heading of the email was school shooting or university campus shooting, something like that. And in the body of the email, there was a threat being made. There will be a shooting on campus coming soon. Be ready. Be on alert. And then this particular person told the whole student body who his target was. And the target was, listen to this, the target was fraternity and sorority Christians who meet, once, who meet weekly to worship. Uh, we're the only ministry that that described. As God grew our ministry to those numerous, you know, several, thou, uh, several thousand, that would have been amazing, several hundred students, more people noticed So we met for several weeks, probably even over a month, where the Tuscaloosa Police Department was circling our building that we were meeting in. And we had undercover policemen in the service because we didn't know if we should take this seriously or not. We didn't know if it was a student just messing around or if it was a legitimate threat. When you preach the gospel, when you proclaim the gospel, when fruit is happening, opposition will come. Now, nothing happened. It was a bogus threat, but we didn't know that. Someone somewhere on that campus didn't like what we were doing and decided to make it known. Opposition will happen. I love this quote from one of my favorite biblical commentators, a guy named Simon Kistemacher. Love that name. Awesome. Somebody needs to name their kid Kistemacher. That'd be fun. He says this, when God's kingdom advances, Satan must yield, but the prince of darkness does not capitulate without combat. He doesn't go down without a fight. You know, Paul wrote about this to the Corinthians when he was in Ephesus. So some of of what you see written in 1 Corinthians 
uh, well, all of it was written from Ephesus while he was with these people in Ephesus that Acts 19 is uh, cluing us into. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul actually says this. He says, um, he says in, uh, in Ephesus, I fought wild beasts. Now listen, Ephesus is a city center. It's an urban place. He's not talking literally here. There's not wild beasts roaming the streets of Ephesus. He's talking about those who oppose the adversaries of the gospel. The ways in which he was being confronted on a daily basis as he proclaimed God's word, as he proclaimed the, the good news of Jesus. He later says in chapter uh, 16 of 1 Corinthians, he says that, he says, I stayed in Ephesus, if you'll remember from when it was read to us a moment ago, he sends Timothy and Erastus ahead, and he sends them to presumably Philippi and Thessalonica, places where they had gone on his first missionary journey, established churches there, and his long-term goal is to get back to those churches and encourage them in the faith, taking up donations along the way as he ultimately gets back to Jerusalem so that he can give those donations to the poor there in Jerusalem and then ultimately be sent to Rome. That's where he's wanting to get. He's wanting to get to Rome. But he delays that trip for himself. He says, Timothy, Erastus, you go on ahead. I'm gonna stay here in Ephesus. And here's why, this is what he says. In 1 Corinthians 16, eight and nine, he says, I stayed in Ephesus because a wide door for effective work was opened. And then the very next phrase out of his mouth is, and in Ephesus, I had many adversaries. So the first part of the sentence we go, well, yeah, of course I would have stayed too. Hey, Corinthian believers, I'm gonna come to you and I'm going to encourage you, but I'm gonna stay here first because a wide door for effective work has been opened by God. You go, okay, yeah, makes sense. And there are many adversaries for me here. You go, oh, well, I think that's when I would leave. But Paul says, no, I want to stay because that means the gospel's taking root in significant ways. His ministry in Ephesus was over two years. He stayed in Ephesus because God was doing a tremendous work through his faithfulness literally daily to proclaim the gospel. You heard last week from Caleb that when was this happening? Well, the first part of chapter 19 clues us in that every single day Paul was going at first to the synagogue but the Jews weren't listening, and so he went into the marketplace. He went into the, the public arena, and he rented this lecture hall from a guy named Tyrannus. Now, Tyrannus was a teacher. He was an educator, and so he wanted to use it during the prime hours, but he let Paul use it during the, the off hours, so to speak, which would have been from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. That was the siesta of that culture. One commentator that I read said that there would there would undoubtedly be more people sleeping at 1 p.m. in the Ephesian culture than at 1 a.m. because of the way that they slept and ate and did their business. So Paul is attracting a crowd with the power of the proclaimed gospel in the worst hours of the day. And people's lives are being changed. And he's doing it day after day after day. And he's met with great opposition. Why is he met with great opposition? Well, the third thing to take away from this text is that gospel proclamation confronts worldly idols. The nature of the gospel is to rub against and fight against and push against and confront 
all of our idols, all of the things that at the heart level and even in our culture we want to worship. And this isn't unique to Ephesus. We'll talk in a moment what was it that they were worshiping specifically. But it's, it's not unique to Ephesus, it's unique to the human heart for every human that's ever lived. Calvin famously said, John Calvin famously said that the human heart is an idol factory. That who we are is we are a people who are grasping at anything and everything to give us the meaning, the purpose, the value, the sense of identity that only God can give through Jesus. And so over the course of human history, we have seen it take place in these ancient cultures with actual idols. Certainly that still exists today too. Idols crafted by the hands of men and gold and silver and other things like that. But for all of us, even if that's not our reality from our culture around us, it's certainly the reality of our hearts. That we will begin to attach ourselves to things other than God himself that are giving us that sense of identity that only he can give. That worth, that satisfaction, that fulfillment, that purpose. Why? Because we were created by him and we were created for him. And we were redeemed, we were originally made in the image of God, and what is Jesus doing? He's redeeming us back into that image. So we are identifying and experiencing the very purpose for our existence when we come unto Christ, by faith in him. We are being reshaped, remolded, remade back into the image of God through the work of Jesus and through his spirit working within us. And so nothing else can give us that. And we begin to worship all these other things. How do we know what we're worshiping? Well, I think we can learn something from Demetrius here. Demetrius is one of the key focal points of this story. As the gospel is taking root, as it's bearing fruit, yes, there's opposition, but Demetrius realizes, this is hitting my pocketbook. This is hitting my wealth, my living. Because what you have here in Ephesus is you have the epicenter of the worship of the goddess Artemis. The Romans called this god Diana, same god. Greeks called her uh, Artemis, Romans called her Diana, but essentially the same god who was the god of wild animals, of hunting, and then the Ephesians added to that, that the Romans didn't, but the Ephesians added that not only was she the, wild, the god of wild animal, animals and hunting, but she was also the god of fertility and childbirth. And here's what they believed. You caught it there in the text just a little bit if you were paying attention. They believe that Zeus threw down a rock from the heavens and it crashed in Ephesus. Now, most scholars believe a meteorite did hit in Ephesus. And they said, Zeus is telling us something. And they said that this meteorite, the stone, was in the image, that it had a bit of an image on it of this goddess, Artemis. And so what did they do? Well, they put this, they left this stone right where it landed, and they built a massive temple around it. And when I say massive, gigantic. If any of you have ever been to Athens, Greece, and have seen the Parthenon, you know how massive it is. This temple, records show that this temple to Artemis was four times the size of the Parthenon had 127 columns, each column standing 60 feet tall. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was huge. And in this temple, there were all these idol, and around this temple were all these idol craftsmen, where they would take 
this, uh, this god of Artemis and they would craft into her image a silver little idol. And people would come and buy these and then they would take them home and continue to worship her at home as they come to worship her in the temple. Now listen, there were 33 locations of temple worship of Artemis throughout this, the empire throughout various cities. So people would come, it was almost like coming to Mecca, as it were. They would pilgrim to Ephesus to worship her, even though they had other little shrines, maybe perhaps in their city. And so these idol makers, these craftsmen, this was their livelihood from all these tourists coming in. And Demetrius says, I've had enough. There's too many Christians now who are leaving worship of Artemis to worship this God, this Jesus. And it's costing me money. Now, undoubtedly, he was higher up in the guild of craftsmen because he was able to gather all these other craftsmen and he, he gathers them into some room right there in the heart of the city and he riles them up. And he says, what are we gonna do about this? And he whips them into a frenzy because they're going, yes. But what are they saying yes to? They're ultimately saying yes to this. This thing that these people are saying are good, is good news is actually taking away from what I really want to worship. And I think there's something for us to learn in that, perhaps. Even as Christians, even if you're a follower of Jesus and you've believed upon the gospel, there's something significant that God wants us to understand about how the idle tendency within us is still strong, even though Christ is in us. We're still fighting that sin nature. And so because it's the example here, I'll just press in on it, on it here. Economically, we can, we can learn a lot about who and what we worship by what we spend our money on. I guess all my illustrations this morning will be from the campus ministry days because it was one time many, many years ago where I brought a guy in to speak to students on how to steward and understand finances. And he made a statement. He said this. He said, and you'll, by this statement, you'll know how long ago it was. He said, show me your checkbook and I'll show you who your gods are. And some, some younger folks are going, checkbook? What is that? Show me your bank account, right? I'll show you who your gods are. Now there was one student in the back of the room who was irate over that comment. He came up to me afterwards and he took issue with, why would you bring this guy in? How dare he say, look, let me look at your checkbook. I'll see who your gods are. He doesn't know me. He can't say that. And I tried to graciously say back to him, hey, all he's trying to say is this. If Jesus is king, he lords over it all. He reigns over it all. And there's not one thing that we don't submit to him, including our finances, how we steward money. There could be some Demetrius in some of us where there's something perhaps, and I know this is, this is touchy, okay? And I'm not thinking about anybody in particular, but there's something in the way that we're spending money and the way that we're putting money towards this over here or that over there that we know deep in our hearts as followers of Jesus that God is saying, give that to me. That doesn't glorify me. That's not how I want you spending money. That's not how I want you investing. That's not what I want you putting that to. And just like Demetrius, we're going, uh-uh, that's, that's part of my wealth. Once you touch that, God says, give it to me. It's easy to read this passage and think Demetrius is just this pagan jerk. But he's a human, just like the rest of us. And when God begins to press in on areas that we don't want him pressing in on, 
We fight back. So back to the story. Demetrius whips this crowd into a frenzy and they spill out. Some earlier manuscripts say that they spill out into the street, which was presumably the Arcadian Way, which was the main thoroughfare through Ephesus. Marble Road tells you how much wealth was there. Marble Road with columns along the whole side with marketplaces all along the way that ran from the port of the city all the way up to the um, theater. This is what it looked like. This is the ruins today. And so you can get a little bit of a picture of what it would have been like for all of these thousands of people to spill out into the streets onto this main thoroughfare as they make their way up to that theater and they fill it to capacity. 25,000 people and most likely thousands more around the theater. And they're all chanting in great confusion Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, did you notice Luke in the passage two times says, they were so confused. Some were chanting one thing and some were chanting another and they finally all got on the same page and saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. What are we yelling about? Why are we mad? You don't know either? Okay, well, let's just be mad together. They don't know, half of them didn't know. It was the craftsmen who got mad and they went out and got everybody and said, yeah, let's riot. They didn't know, man, that's a human thing, right? You ever been a part of a mob? Mob mentality? I would venture to say 70% of the people of mob mentality don't know what the mentality is. But there's this human nature thing where it's like, you're mad, I'll be mad, let's do it, come on, let's go. And that's what was happening, and they were so confused. But the bottom line is, they're gathered into this theater and they're chanting, great is Artemis, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And along the way, they've been looking for Paul and they couldn't find him. So they got two of his travelers with him, two of these Macedonian travels with, travelers with him and they threw them up on the stage of the, of the theater. And then they, a Jewish guy steps up, this guy Alexander, and he's trying to calm the crowds and he's... <laughs> This is funny. Like you got to see the humor sometimes in these things. This Jewish guy stands up and he's trying to calm the crowd. And as soon as he says, I'm a Jew, they start yelling at him because they're basically saying, both of you don't like Artemis. So I don't care if you're Christian or Jew, we're against all of you. And so it is craziness. It is chaos. Here's the fourth thing I want you to take away. Gospel proclamation requires spirit-filled courage. Spirit-filled courage, because when we proclaim the gospel, it may not result in a riot like in Ephesus. It may not result in 25 to 30 to 35 to 40,000 people yelling out the name of a goddess into our faces, threatening our lives. But it takes courage. Because we know that it'll be met with opposition, and we know that we have to have the Spirit's power in us and through us for anything to happen. One of the things I love in this, now some of this, what I'm about to say, could certainly be classified as foolish courage. But I love that Paul is seeing the chaos and he's saying, let me get in there. Let me get in there. I wanna defend the faith in front of all these people. And the disciples won't let him and even some of the higher ranking officials who probably weren't even Christians but had somehow heard Paul's message probably from his teaching and preaching and said, hey, look, you know what? You don't need to go in there. They're gonna eat you alive. There was a courage that Paul had. Paul was a human like the rest of us. 
Sometimes it's easy to deify Paul, as it were. We, we would say, Paul did things that I could never do. No, Paul said he was the chief of sinners. He just simply was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he had courage in him from the Holy Spirit to, you're gonna hear me say this a lot over the years, to go places you normally wouldn't go, to do things you normally wouldn't do, to say things you normally wouldn't say, to risk things you normally wouldn't risk. Because that's what the Spirit does for, through us and for us. He gives us courage, gospel courage. I wanna encourage you with this as well. You may say, Jeff, I've got the courage. I want to be one who faithfully proclaims the gospel. I do. But how? What do I even begin to say? Well, we want to help with that. One of the things that we want to offer, that we do offer on a yearly basis is express your faith. Randy Pope, our founding pastor who you saw up here earlier, does an incredible training on how to show your faith, how to express your faith to those around us. There'll be one of those coming up. We're working on setting the dates. We'll be sure and let you know when, when that is. But we'd love for you to come to that. Because you could be in that spot that I just said. We say, I got courage, I do. But I don't even know how to begin. How would I even begin the conversation? The fifth point is where we'll conclude. Gospel proclamation presents Jesus as preeminent. Preeminent. Preeminent just simply means surpassing all others. In a sense, what Paul was doing in Ephesus, what he was doing in Athens, what he was doing in Corinth, in Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi, all throughout the Galatian territories, all throughout Colossae and all the Middle East, ancient near Middle East, is he's simply saying, whoever your God is, whatever it is that you worship, Jesus is better. In this context, what he's essentially saying is he's saying on a daily basis, as he teaches the scriptures in Tyrannus' teaching room, is he's saying, listen, Jesus is the better, the truer, the greater Artemis. Because think about it. What is it that they were longing for in Artemis? They created a God, a man-made God that was the God of wild animals and the hunt and childbirth and fertility. But who is Jesus? Jesus is the Lord of all creation. They created a God whose image supposedly fell from the sky in the form of a stone. But who is Jesus? Jesus willingly came from heaven, not in the form or image of a stone, but in the image of the invisible God. And he's not called a stone, he's called the cornerstone on which all things hold together. And he wasn't, he didn't come unwillingly. He came by choice. And he came in human flesh to take on absolutely everything and defeat it in our place. A rock can't do that, but a God in human flesh can. Why did the temple of Artemis exist? Well, it was so that man could come and make sacrifice to this goddess. Why? So that the gods would be pleased with you, at least temporarily. But who is Jesus? 
Jesus didn't come to receive sacrifices. He came to be the sacrifice. Yes, so that the Father would be pleased with us, but so much more than that. So that we would be pleased in him, and not just temporarily, but for all of eternity. Perhaps my favorite part of this story is the town clerk at the end. Why? Because the Ephesians saw him as the hero. Town clerk, think mayor. The mayor finally comes after they've been chanting for two hours straight, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The town clerk finally, undoubtedly, probably very articulate, persuasive, has power, enough to calm them down and say, and did you catch what kind of the, the point of his message was? Hey guys, calm down, relax. Everybody in the known world knows Artemis. Everybody does. They, and they know Ephesus is the gatekeeper of her temple. They know that. This thing that they call the way, it's gonna go away. It's gonna fizzle out. It's gonna fade. Just relax. Let the courts take care of this if there's something to take, be taken care of, but go home. It's my favorite part of the story. Because if you're reading it live there in person, or if you're seeing it live there in person, the town clerk is the hero. Oh yeah, voice of reason. Right? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Over and over for two hours. Here we are, 2021. I don't know that you could find one person in the world who is saying that. I don't know if you can find one person in the world that is saying, great is Artemis of the, of what's the name of the city again? Oh, Ephesians. Because God, it's his kingdom that prevails, right? And he gives us this picture at the end of the days. When Christ has returned, he gives us a picture, not of 25,000 or 30 or 35,000, but I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, innumerable from every nation, tongue, and tribe, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, and what were they crying out? Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Not for two hours, not for two days, not for two years, or for a lifetime, but for all of eternity. No one is saying the name of Artemis. Everyone at that day will say the name of Jesus. All of creation on that day when it is made new will sing forever and ever and ever and never grow tired of saying hallelujah for the Lord Jesus Almighty reigns. Father, we can't wait for that day. And we count it a great privilege a great joy to be a part of this journey, this process now of telling people about the one true God, the one true Savior, the one who truly meets us where we are, gives us the rest that we long for, and who will reign forever.
and the new heavens and the new earth. And so God, give us courage, spirit-filled courage to take the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, and the, joy, the joys of eternally knowing you, both now and forevermore. Give us courage through the power of your spirit. As we sing to you now those very words, would you be praised? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, let's sing to our God. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.